The theme of this conference leads us into the very heart of the mystery of salvation, as Christians confess it since two millennia. To say that this theme is inexhaustible is a euphemism. Decisive claims concerning who God is will obviously be drawn from a consideration of the kenosis of the Son in human flesh and in his infamous death on a cross. In what follows, I try to show what, as I see it, a fruitful theological approach might wish to say and also not to say on this central theme. The small bit from a verse found in Paul's epistle to the Galatians, which appears in the title, a mediator involves more than one party, has little and arguably even nothing to do with the topic of kenosis and Trinitarian theology. But I want to suggest that it in fact may help us stay within the bounds of sound, fruitful theological discourse with regard to this topic. Kenosis is first and foremost a Christological theme. It should not be applied too quickly. It should perhaps even not be applied at all to theological discourse concerning the Father or the Spirit. It is the Son, Jesus Christ, who, although in the form of God, took on the form of a slave or servant. And so let us keep our fondness of kenotic aspects within certain limits, I would say. On the other hand, we should not connect this theme too exclusively to the well-known hymn found in Philippians 2. Quite obviously, it is not just Paul in that hymn who ponders the way of the Son to the cross and to this atrocious and shameful death. It is indeed the entire New Testament witness, and especially the four canonical Gospels, which tell us about the canonic dimension of Christ's entire life and ministry. There can therefore be no special fascination among us with the Philippian hymn, even as this text depicts in particularly striking terms the path of self-renunciation, which characterizes Christ's entire ministry as the Son sent by the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. The New Testament tells us that kenosis concerns the Son. It concerns Jesus, the Christ of God. That being said, can we single the Son and posit that his own path has nothing to do with the one sending him in the power of the Spirit? It is quite clear that Jesus' kenotic path is irreducibly and intimately related to the Father and to the Spirit, even as it is the Son and only Him who becomes one of us in the flesh. How might the theme of the covenant shed any light on Christ's kenosis and on his kenosis in relation to God's triune being? I see several possible answers to this question. First, it is important not to sever Christ's kenosis from the writings of the Old Testament. Taking into account these writings helps us realize that kenosis is not some completely new aspect 
of God's action in the fullness of time. This has obvious implications for the doctrine of God, including, of course, the doctrine of God as triune and our views on God's constancy, what some call immutability. The Old Testament witness in its polyphony testifies to God who, far from desiring to live in and of God's own fullness and glory, ase and inse, creates a reality which is utterly different from and yet intimately related to God. Second, we can argue about this, the mere fact of creation implies a self-limitation by God who posits an other who has a measure of freedom with this creaturely agent in play, divine agency cannot be interpreted as the only agency in existence, even as these respective agencies are on such qualitatively different planes that there can be no competition between them. With another agency besides God, certain things might or are bound to occur including things that God does not actually will, but that God does at best and puzzlingly to us permit or allow to occur. Third, God's act, as witnessed in the Old Testament, is a condescending act in the etymological sense, an act which manifests God's care for God's creation. But crucially, this care is an expression of God's commitment to God's creation. What is this commitment if not a clear expression of God's intention to be God with and for God's creation, with and for God's people? God's condescendence in the Old Testament manifests God's de desire to be with God's people, especially, this is important of course, through God's word. This exiting from God's self in order to enter creaturely reality is forcefully and beautifully rendered in one of the most incarnational passages of the Hebrew scriptures, namely Isaiah 55. Interpreting Christ's kenosis in relation with Old Testament texts, such as Isaiah 55, helps us replace the event of the Son's self-emptying within the larger context of God's interaction with God's creation, or better, it allows us to determine from the particular aspect of kenosis the breadth of this self-emptying dimension in the history or in the story of God's ways with God's world. In this way, something important about the constancy of God's action comes to the fore. One of the most interesting terms in the Hebrew scriptures to express this is without a doubt chesed, a polysemic word, which is notoriously difficult to translate since it includes both the notion of love, of loving kindness and faithfulness. This term is bound to find a rather central place in any teaching concerning God as witnessed in the Old and the New Testament. The text of Isaiah 55 may help us steer clear of various interpretations of kenosis which mistakenly interpret God's condescension into humility as a simple renouncement of power and glory. The fathers of the church saw this error 
very clearly. But this error is quite widespread in modern theology, and some of the Lutheran canonic thinkers of the 19th century were especially fond of this interpretive line, according to which the Son, in assuming human flesh, leaves certain attributes of his behind in a movement of entherlichung, a divestment of his glory. Just as the hymn in Philippians does not end with verse 8, the text of Isaiah 55 does not merely speak of it going out of the word, issuing from God's mouth, but also of a return to God, having accomplished what God intended. <coughs> this last bit is also crucial. Isaiah's text mentions that which God purposes. These words lead us right to the heart of a theological reflection on kenosis, however one thinks of it. It leads us to ask the reason for kenosis. Why this movement of self-humiliation? Why this descent into suffering and atrocious death? Why does God repeatedly and consistently bow down, reaching down to the level of God's creature? An answer to this question can only involve a reflection on that which God purposes. And one excellent answer to that question, in my opinion, is this one. In order to fulfill God's covenant promise, I will be your God, you will be my people. We do not need to articulate metaphysical abstractions in order to state, as best we can, the purpose of God's action from beginning to end, or from the end to the beginning, as several significant voices in Christian theology have preferred to put it since at least one half century, and arguably since much longer than that. See the importance of the notion of telos in Aquinas' theological ethics. See also Maximus's thought according to certain interpretations. It is one thing to identify the purpose of God's act in God's word as being intimately related to the covenant. Should we go further and ask ourselves how this purpose was determined and effected as far as God's triune being is concerned? A number of theologians have traveled down this road using the expression pactum salutis in order to designate God's decision within God's being, ad intra, to redeem God's fallen creation. God's eternal pact, especially between the Father and the Son, one wonders what may be the role of the Spirit in this pact, is thus the ground for the entire history of salvation and thus for the entire arc of the covenant. Some studies have traced the emergence of this teaching, which is not found in the main Protestant reformers of the early to mid-16th century, as far as I know, but rather among their direct successors, for instance, in Theodore Beza's writings. How and why did such a teaching emerge? And what scriptural and traditional basis may it claim to have? Commenting upon Luke 22:29, and I confer on you, just as my Father has conferred on me a kingdom, Beza translates the expression diatithemai humin with pakisko vobis, 
rather than with disporno, as did the Vulgate, a translation which Calvin followed. In so doing, the 16th century theologian, the late 16th century theologian, already suggests that this verb has something to do with covenant or pact-making, pakiskor. With this interpretive move, Beza contributed to the emergence of the doctrine of pactum salutis, which began to be taught by a number of Protestant scholars in the era of early Protestant scholasticism, among others, Bucanus, Perkins, Polanus, as well as by later scholars, such as David Dixon, Kloppenburg, and Vitzius, who speak of an agreement or pact between the Father and the Son within God's triune being in relation to the Son's appointment as mediator. Indeed, it appears that for some of these federal theologians, as they came to be called, the stability of the covenant rests on this eternal pact between God and the mediator. What do we do if or when we delve into the notion of an eternal pact of salvation between the Father and the Son, through which the Son is appointed as mediator prior, as it were, to the Incarnation? One thing we do, if or when we do this, is lose sight of the fact that the scriptural witness does not encourage us to peek, as it were, into such a pact between God the Father and God the Son. There are indeed passages in the scriptures which appear to lift the veil, at least fleetingly, with regard to the Father's relation to the Son. The story of Jesus' baptism comes to mind, of course. And there is the passing suggestion we just saw of a transmitting of the kingdom by God to Christ, and in turn, by Christ to his disciples. But should these passing suggestions lead us to elaborate a detailed teaching on this matter? I must say, I have some difficulties with such a possibility. Christ's office as mediator is an office which concerns the covenant between God and God's people, between God and God's creation, and not between God and God, God the Father and God the Son in the unity of the Spirit. At best, such an eternal intra-divine pact ought to be mentioned in passing, just as scripture does, rather than become a theological locus alongside others. I do see positive aspects in mentioning this pact. It invites us to take seriously God's triune being, rather than imagine a monadic supreme being similar to the deity referred to in Deist's writings. It anchors as it were, the covenant within God. But the risks are real, and I turn to them now. The main risk is what John Calvin, following many of the fathers of the church, called the danger of speculation or vain curiosity. Sound theology or sound theological knowledge, as he saw it, is a practical knowledge not a theoretical knowledge, meaning it results and draws from God's acts in history. One of the ways in which sound theological knowledge avoids the trap of falling into theory is by remaining within the bounds of revelation as witnessed by the scriptures. Theological knowledge, in order to be properly theological, 
must acknowledge the limits of revelation rather than too subtly penetrating into the sublime mystery and in this way wander through many evanescent speculation. People of the faith should dearly love soberness and should be, a quote here again, content with the measure of faith, mesure de foi. Of course, regula fidei. Here, Calvin is echoing the Father's injunctions. And Calvin repeats these words of caution throughout his works. Here, he writes again, here indeed, if anywhere in the secret mysteries of scripture, we ought to play the philosophers soberly and with great moderation. Let us use great caution that neither our thoughts nor our speech go beyond the limits to which the word of God itself extends. The cautionary message is clear. God knows God's self, and we should leave to God this privilege of knowing God's self. As Hilary of Poitiers stated in his treatise on the Trinity, Calvin here refers to it. By indulging our curiosity, we end up creating our own labyrinths, and we soon become lost in them. The implications of Calvin's warnings in relation to our topic are as follows, as I see it. To consider the kenosis of the Son in relation to God's triune being means primarily considering the path of the Son from the beginning of his ministry at his baptism all the way until his crucifixion and beyond. It does not primarily mean inquiring into some impact of Christ's self-emptying onto God's very being. Rather, it should lead us to ponder the ways in which his way toward the cross expresses who he is and who God is, and what this way toward the cross achieves for the world, how it transforms the world with regard to its relationship to God. This is arguably the core of the gospel, and whatever consideration of who Christ is in his being as son of the Father should not be severed or abstracted from this core. On the contrary, it is this core which is so clearly expressed in the creeds which ought to frame and orient our reflection on who Christ is. For us human beings and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. We should never lose sight in our pondering of who Jesus Christ is of this for us and for our salvation. Certainly, there's a risk here of a kind of religious egotism in which everything revolves around my salvation. But this risk can be alleviated in various ways, including by a forceful emphasis on the word our, which appears in the text of the creed. And Karl Barth made this emphasis crystal clear in his Doctrine of Reconciliation, part four of the Kirchliche Dogmatik, pronobis precedes and must retain its priority over the Prome. Let us not forget that the Philippians hymn is in fact framed by a parenesis, which concerns the way in which members of the community in Philippi relate to each other, and which issues a call to humility to end their self-centered ways. 
do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Doesn't it matter at all that the hymn which immediately follows these words is introduced by such a call to humility? The very term kenosis, which occurs at the beginning of the hymn, if the hymn is indeed from the Apostle Paul's own hand, but his quoting of a pre-existing hymn can also be understood in a similar way, may have been suggested by the term kenodoxia, vain conceit, pride, which occurs in Philippians 2.3, in Paul's denunciation of ambition. Just as the root of the verb etapeinosen already occurs in nominal form in verse 2, tapeinofrosune. The Philippian hymn, in its immediate textual context, does not so much invite reflections on the triune God as it urges the disciples in Philippi to remember what kind of mind we see in Jesus Christ. Reflecting on Christ's self-emptying in complete abstraction from this call to conform ourselves is, I would argue, problematic. Christ's kenosis becomes complete not in abstraction from what happens in his path to the cross, namely in a supposed initial disposition of certain divine attributes, but as he walks on that path all the way to the end, in utter abandonment from his disciples, as well as, as the cry of dereliction appears to indicate, from God, to whom Jesus nevertheless cries out. This is the climax of kenosis. And so I would argue that the genuine message of kenosis is disclosed not in ontological categories, which are used abstractly, but in the telling and retelling of Jesus' path to the cross. All four canonical gospels precisely do that, as Martin Kehler famously suggested. And we ought to follow them in doing that. I do not suggest here that we stop thinking about the triune God. This is not at all what I wish to say. Rather, I want to suggest that a consideration of Christ's kenosis in relation to God's triune being must follow the movement of Christ's kenosis and not remain in the celestial spheres, pondering Christ's divine form as such for too long. For this divine form is in itself oriented toward this other form on which the Philippians hymn focuses, namely the form of a slave or servant. A covenant theology may help us remember that the heart of all of God's ways with God's people concerns God's creating and liberating act towards his people and toward creation as a whole. Such a covenant theology, in turn, might help us remain focused on the real heart of Christian theology instead of evading this heart in this or that direction, be it metaphysical or liberationist. Theologians are at times fond of exploring the depths of God's being, when in fact it is not us but God's own spirit who searches even the depths of God. And so no one comprehends what is truly God's except the spirit of God. Yes, we have received 
Not the spirit of the world, but the spirit that is from God, as Paul writes. But Paul continues, this occurs so that we may understand the gifts, charisthenta, bestowed on us by God. To practice Christian theology is to seek to understand the gifts bestowed on us by God. In relation to the theme of Christ's kenosis and God's triunity, this may lead us to reflect on the fact that God's love is poured out from on high in the form of a self-giving love, a love which does not seek domination over the, over the loved one, but rather a love which places itself in the serving of the loved one, giving its life for the sake of the loved one. In relation to this, a key text to understand Christ's kenosis is the narration in the fourth gospel on how, having loved his own who were in the world, Christ Jesus loved them to the end, eis telos, egapesen autus. This text illuminates for us the meaning of the form of a slave of Philippians 2. But it also tells us something crucial about Christ's own relationship to the Father. And this is, of course, highly relevant for the theme of our conference. And during supper, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, got up from the table, took off his outer robe, and tied a towel around himself. There is, in these verses, a sort of parallel narrative version to Philippians 2, 6 and 7. In Jesus' act of divesting himself of his clothes in order to tie a towel around himself. There is also a striking parallel with the Philippians hymn taken as a whole in its two parts, descending and ascending, with regard to the coming from God and the going to God. More significantly still, especially for our purposes, the author of the fourth gospel traces this kenotic act to an original gift from the Father to the Son. Not just a gift or any gift, but the gift of all things. This is precisely the place where kenotic Christology and God's triune being fruitfully intersect, scripturally and theologically. What Christ's kenotic path reveals is the giving from God the Father to his Son of all things into his hands. But this act of giving in no way means an enriching of the Son for the Son's own enjoyment. Rather, it involves a further giving of himself from the part of the Son to his disciples and to the world in order to restore, renew, and accomplish God's intention of being God for God's people, of being God with God's people in a relation of communion or fellowship, which is God's original and eschatological covenant intention. Let us note that in John 13 and the story of the sacrament of the foot washing of the disciples by their teacher and Lord, we find the exact same paranetic call than in Philippians 2, namely, if I have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have set you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Two of the most significant canonic texts in the New Testament, namely Philippians 2 and John 13, are in fact paranetic texts 
grounded in a recalling or retelling of God's own gift-giving in God's own Son, Christ Jesus. If we strive, as we should, to think theologically in close interaction with the Scriptures, then we should not become completely oblivious to what Francophone people call the point, the aim of these texts, which certainly say something to us about God, about the providence and the destination of the Son, but not in abstraction from God's act toward God's disciples or toward God's beloved creature. In recent decades, Christian theologians have emphasized afresh the ground of the Church's mission, namely its embeddedness within God's mission. The text we just considered briefly, John 13, points points our minds in the direction of this missio, which is the very basis of all we do as Christians gathered in the Church, participating in its life, and so also as Christian theologians working in various contexts, including within secular universities, where the challenge of not forfeiting our belonging within God's mission is significant. Attempting to stay grounded, or perhaps better, becoming again and again grounded in God's mission, implies that we both remain utterly attentive to who God is, as the one who gives God's self, without purely and simply abandoning abandoning who God is, as the one who entrusts all things into the hands of the Son, who, in turn, follows in every moment of his existence a path of service to his disciples and to others, which leads him to suffer great distress and violence right from the beginning of his ministry. Kenosis doesn't begin on Calvary. The point of theology in this light is not merely to explain the intricacies of how Christ's divine nature became correlated with his human nature, although there certainly must be room for such reflections, especially as they relate to God's redeeming act, as narrated by the Gospels, but rather to reflect on the way in which the Father entrusts all things in the hands of his Son, who in turn, in the power of the Spirit, manifests God's self-giving love to the end, eis It is not merely the fourth gospel which renders witness to the giving by the Father to the Son of all things. It's not just, of course, the fourth gospel that has these Trinitarian discourses. Luke also alludes to this in this way. And I confer on you, just as my Father has conferred on me, a kingdom. We saw that earlier. And there's the Greek word, diatithemai. That gives Beza the idea of pakisko, a pact. There's a giving from the Father to the Son, which is mentioned here, but in relation with, not in abstraction from, the entrusting of that same reality to the disciples. As the fourth gospel tells us elsewhere, in a key passage also for the theme of our conference, the Son can do nothing on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. John 5, 27. 
this verse should not be taken to say that the son takes on human flesh because he sees the father doing this. This would be absurd. It signals quite differently that the act of assuming human flesh fully conforms to the self-giving love the father manifests to the son, the beloved with whom God is well pleased. Such verses, just as kenotic Christology as a whole, tell us what sort of Lord God is, as Luther put it. Namely, God whose eyes look only in the depths, not to the heights. To God alone belongs that sort of seeing that looks into the depths with their need and misery and is near to all that are in the depths. A passage that Christoph Schwebel already alluded to earlier. In this way, we may show, however inadequately, how Christ's kenotic path throughout his ministry and all the way until Golgotha, far from representing a departure from God's ways with his people of Israel, is in direct continuity with that story, fulfilling it and revealing it in its true light. What shines forth here is the amazing constancy of God's self-giving love from the beginning to the end. We should be careful not to present this self-giving love in overly nice and smooth terms. We should remember that this agapic love unleashes the greatest barbarity from the part of human beings, especially religiously devout and politically powerful human beings who will do everything in their power to stop this love, to silence it for good, or to cautiously stay away as this human being, Jesus of Nazareth, who perfectly embodies agapic love, is being mistreated, tortured, and put to death. Human, human sinfulness, the brokenness of our ways, is rendered visible, is revealed, only in relation to this astonishing light which overwhelms us. This, too, the darkness and evil which kenotic love and which only kenotic love manifests, must be part of a theological reflection on kenotic Christology and God's triunity. I come to my conclusion. In light of what precedes, or better, in the light which is cast upon us from on high through the gospel, we will realize that there are only two ways of responding to this gift which Christ mediates to us through the service of others as Christ showed us, which means a service which attends to others, especially those who are voiceless or marginalized among us on the one hand, but also a service who resists the evil ways of the human, especially the violence which animates us all too often as distorted, rebellious creatures. And also, concomitantly and finally, through a different kind of service, namely our communal, unending praise of the Father, the source of all good gifts. Thank you very much. I, um, I have a question that's more of uh, in an idea. It's a more
chapter 12, he says, The Father himself, who sent me, has given me his command of what I must say and declare. Then in verse, or in chapter 14, um, he speaks of the prince of this world who is coming. And then at the very end of that chapter, he says, Come, I must go. It's necessary that the world knows that I love the Father and that I do all that he has commanded me. And then in chapter 15, he says, As the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Give in my love. If you are faithful to my commandments, you will live in my love, and then I will come. And my command is this, that you love one another as I have loved you. So I'm seeing in the word command the same progression of thought that I was following in your talk. The idea of, I'm just wondering how you could put this together with the idea of an eternal act, so to speak. Um, this idea, this is always fascinating to me, the command. As I command you, this is an image of what I have received as a command. And this command will be the, the, the revelation of the cross becomes the image of his faithfulness to that command. So I guess it's just a, a thought to throw out. How would you then interpret this in terms of following up on the beautiful correction, following up? Thank you for this uh, suggestion to think about this theme of commandment. So yes, you're, it's interesting what you point out about this transmission from the Father to the Son of a command and then to the, to the disciples. There's this double movement, but which goes only in one direction, from the Father to the creature via the mediator, if you wish. So this is what interests me, that's in this, this movement that goes in this way. And then we theologians love going the other way. And this is what I'm asking us to maybe think about. Why, why do we love so much to go the, the other route? And why not try to, to in our theological reflection, to, to keep in mind the direction of this commandment that issues from the Father through the Son to the disciples. And then, of course, we could think about kenosis, the command as a way of embodying, as living the, in conformity with the kenotic movement of Christ in his life, right from the beginning, as I suggested, uh, on the basis of Luke 4, all the way to the end. It's because this is a command to love. It has a content, this command. It has a very specific content. And this content reflects not just what God does, but who God is, according to Johannine uh, perception or vision. So I think there's interesting things to, to think about in connection with kenosis and, uh, and this theme of, the of command. Thank you. Christoph, if I could just pursue you on this for a moment in terms of clarification. So this is a very rich and very deep paper, and there were many uh, 
deeply from Christian themes that we all shared in it. One of the things you did was, in, in one sense, locate kenosis in the human life of Jesus as expressive of his saving action for us and the manifestation of the Father's commandment for us. But as also you just did these last comments, you directed us to the Jonah image of him receiving all things from the Father back into the Father's eternal will. This raises a number of interesting questions for me, and so I wanted to you know, see where this goes. As you know, as well as anyone in this room, in Church Dogmatics 4, Volume 1, Section 59, Karl Barth understands the distinction of the Father and the Son having been manifested in the genesis of Christ in his human obedience, to be eternally constitutive of God as commandment and obedience. And I'm wondering if you're intimating that that is a licit development, or whether you fear that that is a speculation in the pejorative sense that you understand it. And then the second thing I want to add to that is, as you also know equally well as anyone in the room, Bruce McCormick has developed from that idea the fact that obedience doesn't just have an contentless aspect, but is an obedience to do something. And so it's the Father commanding His Son from all eternity in view of the election of the human race to become incarnate and to suffer and die for us. So that the, the, the activity of becoming incarnate and living out the canonic human life among us is in a certain sense inscribed in the eternal distinction of the Son and the Father because election is inscribed in the very heart of eternal procession. Now, it, it's arguable that that second idea of McCormick of basically election being an aspect of the Trinity necessarily is not in Mark. But I just wonder if, given the cautiousness, I mean, I like the cautiousness of your paper, but I wonder if you want to comment on whether it goes to the Bardian metro stop, and does it go further to the McCormick metro stop, <laughs> or does it just stay at the shallow metro <laughs> So, thank you. Um, that would deserve another paper <laughs> to go into all of this. I find paragraph 59 to be one of the highlights of the Church of Manus. Uh, it's astounding uh, what happens in those pages. Uh, I know that you're also sensitive to the, I mean, even if you may not completely buy it. Um, I, I find it absolutely fantastic the way Bart defines glory from the, the way of the sun in the far country. To me, this is theology at its best because, because um, it is so counterintuitive to what we think about glory. So this is really an example you know, of the metanoia and the metamorphosis of the noose that Paul uh, enjoins Christians uh, in Romans 12. And in Ephesians also there's a, a remarkably similar passage on this transformation of the mind. To me, uh, well, in paragraph 59 of 4.1, I see something of that, a full redefining of what glory means, what power means. So all the attributes there are in the process of being revised from, this, from the event of the cross, from the event of the self 
the self-discipline descent. And to me, this is what Christian theology is supposed to be doing, is to think about God from in the light of the scripture and what scripture witnesses to. So what we're talking about is revision of the attributes uh, from the standpoint, if that's the standpoint of revelation, is, is, is exactly the, what theology, Christian theology is supposed to be doing. So I am, I am a fan of paragraph 59 very much. Bruce, I have, I have more difficulties. Um, yeah, I've written on that once, and uh, I just don't agree with this thesis, which he has nuanced in late in recent years. I haven't read all of the material that Bruce has produced on this, but that uh, that election is a sort of creative act that creates who God is. This primacy of act over being simply doesn't work for me. For me, there is a equiprimordial act being, being an act, dialectic. And you cannot have act be prior, even logically prior to being. So the, the thesis doesn't work, in my opinion. The fact that so many people have not followed Bruce on this should just, for him, be a, a hint that something is amiss with this thesis. So few people have been able to embrace it. Um, so, and clearly, I don't think it's in Bart, although maybe there are a few hints that might go in that direction somewhere. Or, but uh, no, I, I have some troubles with that. Well, thank you. It was a thoughtful paper, but it was a very clear answer. Uh, thank you so much. I, I, I have two questions. Uh, one has to do with your style of writing which I find very fascinating. Uh, and this is the question. So evidently, you are very gender sensitive. You clearly refuse to use gender identification for God. So God was not referred to as to me or he is. Um, I want to know what it means to you beyond this lecture, in terms of your style of writing. Um, you've mentioned that with theology is to focus on the God of the Bible. And the God of the Bible, together with tradition, identifies God with the masculine gender. It doesn't mean God is there, neither does it mean God is female. So, um, in that sensitive as to refuse the usage of any gender as well, doesn't it introduce gender politics into theology? So that's my first question. My second question, I have to combine what you mentioned at the earliest part of your lecture, that Gnosis is first and foremost a Christological thing that doesn't really need to concern God the Father and God the Son, uh, and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. I will combine that with another thing you mentioned in the name of the lecture, that theologians and times are fond of exploring the depths of God's name, when in fact it is God who searches the depths of God. Now, St. Thomas in Summa Theologian uh, clearly pointed out that God 
is the subject matter of this science. And the science is theology. So if we go tightly to your position that it is all investigates the guests of God and not we human, uh, isn't that a little bit anti anti theology? So uh, how can you reconcile this too? Thank you. It would be ironic if I were to introduce gender quality into theological discourse, theological discourse, by trying to avoid the gender language, which I don't always avoid, as you saw perhaps. Sometimes there's a his that appears. So I am not 100% uh, immune to this. But you know, I taught for eight years as a colleague of Elizabeth Johnson at Fordham University, and it did leave a mark, and I think a positive mark. <laughs> I think a positive mark on me. So this is simply a sensitivity to that. And I think the scripture uh, does not simply speak in male terms uh, about God. So I would, I, would, I would challenge this claim that I think I heard you express a moment ago. Um, yes, God is the subject of this science. I was very keen to follow John Webster's call in his inaugural lecture, I think it was in Oxford, on theological theology. Theological theology. I am all for that. So this is not what I wanted to say by saying that God's spirit searches the depths of who God is, of God's being. I wanted to say this, how do we talk about God? And I'm not saying we shouldn't talk about God, or theology should no longer, should abstain from its subject matter. This is the subject matter of theology, God. God in God's word, God in relation to the world. So, I was simply recalling Hilary of Poitiers, comments which Calvin quotes on the fact that God knows God and we are made to participate in this knowledge but we need to remember how in what status uh, Emmanuel Durand a while ago talked about the wayfarer theology, theologia viatorum, so all of this is key to understand how we may talk about God. Thank you very much, that was also a very rich paper. Um, I'm still puzzling a little over what you said, reflecting on Christ's self-emptying and complete abstraction from this soul to be of the mind of Christ, which introduced the passage of Philippians um, to perform ourselves is um, problematic. That's right. And I also agree that we have to think, so to say, with a mystery in the direction of God's love to God's creatures. Um, and this implies surely that we cannot return God's love to him in some way so that we could return. Why nevertheless reflect on um, where this commitment is rooted, where does it have its foundation? Um, this is, I think, just a way of thinking about how serious is it? And if this commitment to be of the same mind as Christ is rooted in the very being of God. That would be in the procession between the Father and the Son. Then this would be of the utmost seriousness. There would be no way in which we could say, well, this is an optional extra, and we still believe in the same God. Right. 
And therefore, the deepest line of Trinitarian theology and the most radical kind of ethical commitment seem to be long inextricably together. Yes. You can't have one with the other. And the mistake in Bruce Lacombe's, I think, would be to say there's an act that perceives God's actuality of its being. Now, if that were the case, that would also distort our acting, because then there would be some kind of ethical decisionism that would also characterize the very being of the Trinity. And that's why this particular proposal, I think, is close to being very dangerous. I know we're talking about our friend Bruce, yeah. but nevertheless, even our friends can make dangerous mistakes. Do you agree? I agree. And I would be making a dangerous mistake if I fell into the trap that you're signaling of saying, let's focus on the ethical and let's forget about the ontological, etc. Which is not what I'm trying to say in this paper. I'm just saying that there's also a trap of considering the ontological in abstraction of the ethical. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Thank you very much for a very thoughtful paper. Uh, I think uh, your uh, conclusion here as a healthy warning against uh, reading too much into the Trinitarian theology, which seems to be rather prevalent in much of contemporary theology, uh, even in Balthazar or Mokman and Panenberg and so on. I see some of those trends very widespread uh, and so on. So I think your uh, warning seems to be rather well taken. Now, that also raises a very important question though, uh, in terms of certain fundamental issues in Trinitarian theology itself. Namely, uh, in the Trinitarian controversies of the early centuries, of course, they all find the scriptural passages, you say. And so, if we apply your criterion here, that we should use them only for our own, you know, as a reflection on gospel for us and so on, but not as a basis for projecting the divine life and so on. Uh, I sometimes wonder how much of those passages would have uh, survived and uh, led to contemporary uh, Trinitarian theology at all. You know. So, did you think about, you know, it's, uh, as a, some kind of a general kind of guideline for using the scripture for Trinitarian purposes and so on. I know that it's very difficult to do. Uh, you cannot perhaps lay down any general rules there, even though many of the early fathers try to do. Uh, but uh, I don't know what, what you were thinking about this might be uh, in terms of uh, the tendencies to project. Thank you. I don't have general guidelines, no. I want to take serious scripture seriously. I want to pay attention to these little bits in scriptures, as I did briefly, that indicate, that point in the direction of a gift from the Father to the Son, and then from the Son to the disciples or to the world. This is, this is what interests me, those little bits that lead us to think, to imagine, maybe to even speculatively, speculatively imagine, after, despite what I said about theory, etc. To, 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 to construct something theologically on the basis of these little bits from the scriptures. There's little moments where we are allowed to peek into this relation between the Father and the Son, the baptism being the key text, as I, as I mentioned earlier. This is what interests me. And, yeah. Please tell me the name of the